I'm very glad to welcome Elizabeth Parker, whose first collection, In Her Shambles, um, is published by Seren Press. And uh, this was preceded by a pamphlet called Antinopolis, <laughs> which was an eyewear, was it? It was, yeah. Yeah, an eyewear pamphlet. So Elizabeth grew up in the Forest of Dean, which is obviously just around the corner from here, though we were discussing how long it can feel like it takes to get there sometimes. It's quite windy, isn't it, sometimes? <coughs> it depends how you go. Yeah. Anyway, so it's really lovely to have, have you here from just there. <laughs> and I understand your parents owned a garden centre. They still there. own They still do, yeah. yeah, yeah there's one or two garden centre poems coming. <laughs> oh, good, yeah. So we'll, uh, it'll be interesting to chat about that. And um, Elizabeth has won or been shortlisted for a number of prizes, including the Bridport Prize, Troubadour International and Gregory O'Donoghue Awards. And she lives on the harbour in Bristol, uh, which I liked that detail because I've noticed how much water it appears in your poems. So, yeah, we're, uh, we, we actually move. We, oh, we're still near it. We're still near it. <laughs> <laughs> but we're a little bit back from it now. But yeah, yeah. it's... Um, yeah. Really lovely. Still influential. Yeah, sure. it's such a lovely, <laughs> lovely place to live, I thought. And um, Elizabeth is a member of um, the Bristol poetry group, The Spoke. So that might be something as well to chat about, a bit about that and how that has... Um, Interesting, yeah. a, It yeah. seemed like a, li- a lively group. So um, please join me to welcome Elizabeth Parker. Please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I was going to read for 20 minutes before we have our conversation and then finish with 10 minutes, if that's all right with everyone. It's obviously wonderful to be here. Um, Ledbury's like a capital of poetry, uh, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I've been wanting to do an event for Chloe for some time, so thank you for having me. And uh, <coughs> I'll get straight in there. I'm going to read um, a few from the collection and a few new ones tonight because I'm I'm, all things going well. I've got a second book coming out in a year or so, so uh, yeah, test them on you guys if it's okay. (laughs) Crockery. I can't look at you. I keep my eyes on crockery. Notice you are split between glass, chrome, china. Your index finger, a pink glow in the salt cellar's skirt. Face, a pale glaze on white plates. The wine glass has peeled a crescent from your mouth. Each crease ridging the grease. I can't look at you. Instead, I watch your coffee ripple when you knock the table with a knee. As you leave, glasses clear, spoons lose their dash of colour. As Chloe said, I grew up in a garden centre in the middle of the Forest of Dean and um, we had various encounters with wildlife, mostly my dad rescuing different animals. Um, recent, most recently there was an enormous wild boar that kept getting into the shop and eating the um, bird food. <laughs> my mum actually smacked it on the bum at four in the morning <laughs> against all advice. Um, and um, this poem, the boar doesn't feature it, it was written earlier than that, but uh, it does feature quite a few of these encounters. And it's called 
rescues. Fallow doe caught in the boundary fence. Fetlock trapped in the top straining wires. Wind plucking her fur as my father squeezed wire cutters until they bit, freed her to bolt, streak into bracken. Barely their weight of the pipistrelle he scooped from the outdoor loo as if a bit of night had torn away, wafted through. Their roost in the unused loft, tucking through the wrong hole. Shadows in ceiling corners, black fruits he gently unpeeled to show us wings laced with limb. House martin chicks fledging early from the mud bowl of the nest, spit wattled to rafter and wall, too keen to muscle for flight. Picked from gaps in stacked compost pallets, soft tickle on your palm, the texture of breath. Heartbeats batting his hand. There's nothing there, no weight in them, same with anything that flies. His gloved hands click-locking a stepladder, placing them back in the wrong nest, hoping they'd be adopted. Birds, shrews, mice, pried from the white portcullis of the cat's teeth. Tiny bump of their pulse on his fingertips. Thimble hearts pumping final millilitres of blood. Black bathtub spiders peeping legs through gaps in the tunnel of his thick tan fingers. A fractured buzzard by Canop Brook cowled in a bath towel. His three daughters calling to him from their cities. Shrill cry of the phone. His voice still broomy soft, saving us each time. There's a little bit of poetic license in the next poem. Um, I attended an Avon course, which by chance was all women, and we were all totally obsessed and slightly infatuated with a particular famous poet, long dead, but fabulous poet, and see if you can guess who it is, although there is a bit of poetic license. Um, stalking the poet. We discuss him at the long table. Bare feet seeping heat into flagstones in a kitchen that stays cold all year. We begin outside his window. I, his ship's figurehead, pleased to find scratches in her chest. Follow minnows of light drifting through his bottled ships. Squint closer for miniature clippers tweezered through glass necks, rigged with string to raise masts, spars, sails with a gentle pull. We peruse his sea ivory, explore Scrimshaw, each cut etched into his catchalot's tooth. Walrus tongue, narwhal horn, inked with needles tipped in candle black, tobacco juice. To detail the curve of a bosom, a sperm whale's spume.
We chant the names of dead poets carved in the beams of his mahogany bar. Stare at a gypsy ball bleared with fingerprints, chairs shaped like water lilies, a dreg of brandy in his crystal decanter. Glimpse but do not pause on oil portraits. Ignore the lustrous women that line the halls. His neighbour says he's headed down the street. We spot his curiosity shrinking on shop windows, distilling to drips. Swipe lines through his breath, rub it into our skin. A cat is still purring where he paused for his face in the polish of its eye. We stroke until our hands are thinly gloved in the grease he too has worn. There were white petals on a window where he laid his fingers on dimmed rooms. Boot treads in the dust resettling on a swept doorstep. By the river, we press our palms onto crushed grass, straining to straighten its blades where he knelt to wash his pen. A lady ushers us into her front garden, claims he parted the folds of her old tea rose to unspool its scent. There is no trace of him near the upturned pot or in the squibble of stems and spiders he tipped onto his shadow. Though we roll our sleeves, dip our arms elbow deep. See if any of you guessed who that was. What's going to say, clue? How long has he been? He, he, he died in suspicious circumstances, and he's not UK. I won't tell you yet. I don't think I'll tell you. It's not Shelley, is it? No, he's not British. Forget the T Rose bit. That might help. Um, one thread in the, this collection, and probably something that I think is going to emerge again and again, for whatever reason, is my minor obsession with um, Titus Andronicus. I mean, I'm mad about Shakespeare anyway. I'm writing a novel about teaching teenagers Shakespeare. And um, Titus, just I think just because it's just that bit different and a bit weird and edgy, has, has been on my mind quite a lot particularly the figure of Lavinia, um, who is subject to a vicious attack in the play, where um, in revenge for something Titus did, uh, Tamara's, Tamara the Tigress, her sons attack Lavinia, and so that she can't identify her attackers, sorry if you know the play, <laughs> um, they cut, off, cut out her tongue and cut off her hands, and it's kind of based on the myth of Philomel. Um, and she, uh, she's always been a fascination of mine, as has the play, so I've gone and seen it in all sorts of various um, contexts. And this poem imagines the uh, attacked Lavinia using a very different sort of language. And it begins with a quotation from the play from her uncle Marcus. Lavinia writes, Sorrow concealed like an oven stopped doth burn the heart to cinders where it is. 
I dipped a finger in my mouth, strummed, then picked the stitches in the root of my stolen tongue. I tipped my head over paper, let my words pump, breach the dam, fill fibres, glut pores. The page can't hold them anymore. I write bright, long sentences over chairs, walls, floors. I sign the carpet. It is cleaned. I write bright, long sentences over chairs, walls, floors. They sew me up again, offer a fountain pen. I refuse ink, tear their neat stitcheries. I sign the carpet, it is cleaned. I watch pink words sucked by the plug hole. I refuse ink, the carpet stores a stain. I watch the plug hole suck pink water. I am offered a loom, a needle is tucked between my teeth. I am told to weave a new pattern through the weft. I am offered a loom, a needle. I refuse thread, spit the needle. It falls to the carpet with a red word. I watch the word creep through the weave. I tear more, free more until I am fluent. A Bristol poem now. The Spoke have a Facebook page if you're interested in um, looking at a sort of poetry collective. We do quite a lot of events and readings and we actually did a project with a band called Eyebrow where um, we wrote a poem for every stop on the Seven Beach railway line and they did a song, a track, and we created a CD and did various events. And you can actually, if you go on trackrecordarts.com, you can download the, the whole CD, the whole album, for free. And this is one of the poems, and it's the poem that was written for um, Montpellier Station. I'm a little bit short of breath because <laughs> something's <laughs> pushing up. <laughs> 10.30 to 7 Beach. She sat beside me at Montpellier Station. She said she liked to see the seasons come in. Her ankles were threaded with dark veins. I thought of wisteria gripping bricks. Her face was pink sacks, grey pouches hung from ledges of bone. She said she'd given up Clifton. High ceilings were hard to heat. On the other side of the line, bramble stalks were dark purple. We spoke of Brighton, propping your back on a groin, plucking at its barnacles, sliding fingers over tiny mirrors of black quartz. As the sea spat inky sprawls of bladderwrack, snatched it back. She said, you get it when there's a gale. In the morning, all those pebbles chucked out onto the promenade. 
and the water whooshing over might catch you any moment. She'd lived in a Regency house, just the basement though, and could always hear the sea, even in the dark. We talked of Arundel Castle, the gift shop, those lovely soaps and woollens. She led me there with her sentence. It's reached along a flat path at the bottom of the village. She stood up to go, said she didn't want to keep me. I wanted to keep her. I stepped through the lisp of sliding doors. When the 10.30 left, she was still sat on the bench. I'm going to try some new ones now. I've been writing in form. Uh, tried some pantoums, sonnets, villanelles. I loved the restraint of those. Maybe we could talk about that a bit mm. later as well. Um, so, um, yeah, here's a pantoum. <laughs> And there's a few gardens coming up. Come to the bottom of the garden. Leave tamed roses, profusions of azalea. Come to the lowest part of his garden. He'll never say what you need to hear, but his crab apples offer laden arms. Come to the lowest part of his garden. Leave the top lawn, here it's wilder. Let their quiet battles continue as you descend to the sound of water. Leave the top lawn, here it's wilder. Just a few stones, a slope, a step to reach the sound of water. No fish in the fountain, just weed, boatmen. Just a few stones, a slope, a step. Join me at the walnut tree. Leave feuds, look over the fence. Breathe acres, fill yourself with beach. Join me at the walnut tree. Watch magpies dip into aisles of fir. Breathe acres, fill yourself with beach. Let sticky weed lay its claim. Dip your eyes into aisles of fur. Come with me to clover. Let sticky weed lay its claim. Pick your way through mouldered leaves. Come with me to clover. You have waited too long for his praise. Pick your way through mouldered leaves. Drop the words you need among them. This one's for my son, who's getting on for three, uh, Jack. There was an exhibition of da Vinci's drawings in the Bristol Museum, and um, it was interesting seeing how he reacted to them. Just kind of concentrated for five minutes, and then it was very noisy. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Leonardo, couldn't stay long, had to lift him up to meet you, thought he might squirm, but your lines caught him long enough for a lady in a gauzy scarf, dust grey moth of a thing, to say, ah, <coughs> lovely, at his gaze as he followed sinews.
She looked longer at him than at the massy vines of the bronchi, intricate hearts chiaroscuro under dim lamps, a cow's uterus, wombs neat as nutshells, Christ with a lamb, a bear's foot, horse's anus, mortars, crossbows, projectiles. She will return to this, your anatomies, the child's curls shining on his temples, his every nerve, every fibre, wondering your lines, asking with more than words. A golden ratio, a web spun between you, nothing could break. His eyes on a hunched foetus, bud of brown pencil, all lines furled. I think there's time for one more. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm hoping, if they like it, the second collection um, is maybe... No, I'm not going to tell you the title, but it's going to have a lot of poems about cormorants in it. <laughs> because I think it's living in Bristol. I think it's a bird that I've seen in the forest as well. But I've seen them so often and in so many different kind of postures. And we all know how strange they are I've got quite an obsession with them so um, one thread of the second book is cormorant poems <laughs> that could, you know who knows where that's going to go <laughs> um, so um, I've got two that I'm going to read this evening and this is the first um, cormorant cormorant on rivers black curl from the avon Cormorant at mouth, streak above the estuary, brandishing fish. Cormorant at source, plucking at tributaries, where elvers string their bodies to the current. Cormorant at confluence of salt and fresh, deep and shallow, rivers changing names. Cormorant inland, locked to lakes, urban rivers, when I can't think past this city. Cormorant beyond, hinterlands, borderlands, backwaters. Sea cormorant spying salmon, black feet ripping seams in the Atlantic. Cormorant all seasons when swallows, sand martins, pluck their feet from winter. Slow city cormorant, wings half spread on a jetty, hooked on air to dry. Cormorant on docks, on beaches, blot in a stitchery of trees. Cormorant colonial, six omens in a dying beach. Cormorant grand, landing with wings full-stretched, wake of shredded water. The harbour's centrepiece, dark as cast iron. Cormorant small, a black jot on pale miles. I want cormorant every day. Nothing in my life so streamlined 
as the sleek hook. The secret only water watchers see the river keep. Cormoran, Sea Raven, Herald, Harbinger, Black Crucifix, Spirit of the Drowned, surfacing from its dive. Thank you. Very much. Thank you for sharing those and for sharing new poems as well. That's really, really lovely to hear. So, I'll um, I'm going to get started with firstly asking you just about the title and where the title came from and what you're thinking about with that title in her shambles. Oh, that's really interesting. So, um, I, I thought of. I knew I thought of shambling, shambling along yeah. and being in a bit of a mess. And then my friend Greg, who absolutely loves Terry Pratchett, said that the um the witch's shambles is kind of like a cat's cradle that in which witches will thread various objects to um cast protective spells. Oh. And then someone said there's a shambles, you know, in cities you can have little lanes that are called the shambles and, mm. and it all just kind of, I was like, this is brilliant, <laughs> this word exploded, you know. And um, But the main thing for me was the, you know, in, in her kind of wreckage, in her mess, in her shambling along. Yeah. And then when I started to see all these possibilities of this word that you don't hear that much really, shambles, mm. it's got a lovely sound, mm. I thought, come on, let's... And yeah. um, the artist of the, yeah. the the book cover artist had this image already. She does lots of these headdresses and things, and right. the kind of chaos of that married really well with with the with the title. Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> it's got a very female theme as well. This book, there's a lot of she's and hers, and you know eyes that are that are female. So the her was important as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's lovely, and because um, I was thinking, um, as you were putting the collection together, it's a first collection in a, in a way. So, how um, did you have a lot of material, and um, did how far back does it go, and how did you sort of think about that, and and the sort of ordering of it? It'd be interesting just to hear a bit about that kind of. Um, well, what was really helpful is the spoke started as a workshop group, so we've met monthly for for quite a few years now. Well before this, I mean, we started going to chapter arts, and that's where we met the Seren editor and things like that. We did that together. So as a workshop group, we kind of helped to sort of filter each other's work anyway. I could see what they reacted to well, and and then it was a matter of, you know, what material have I managed to get to a certain standard. But in terms of creating the collection, I I had to decide. So I, I got some advice and I, in the end I decided on, um, I started with theme and then I actually thought, I think it's more about voice. I think it's about, I had poems in the first person, poems in the third person um, and various different perspectives. And it was whether I group them according to, you know, wh what person I'm using or whether I mix that together for variety. So I tried both, and then I realised it was quite nice to kind of alternate. But if you jump from, you know, a very intimate relationship poem to something completely different, it doesn't always work. So it was just feeling, and it was laying them out. And But I did have this idea of kind of going from the I to the she to the her. I, that had a nice feel to it. So it was, more, it was actually more about the person I was writing in. Okay. Um, 
but mm. it, I had there were loads of ways you can start it or try it with themes and see how that works and then mm. yeah it's 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 difficult yeah because it, it certainly I pick up on this sense of the conversational element within the poems and some of the poems have a kind of collage or um, where you've cut and sort of different, different voices, voices yeah. in yeah, and then yeah. um, and. And a lot of the poems sort of detail, you know, relationships and yep. endings and yep. beginnings. And so that sort of thing, you think about the shambles idea. So I can see there's, um, uh, but, and it, this sense of you talking or making conversations out of, was that something that you were... I think that was like the nature of the poems that I, I was writing then. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm stepping back a bit now with writing in form and things, but certainly I just ended up with lots of poems that were quite direct and um, I've always liked bringing in other voices the ventriloquist element of um, of writing so I think that will probably continue mm. and intertextuality is something I love as well you mm. know bringing responding to text within the text and that kind of thing um, ekphrastic writing about art and stuff like that so I think that's just something I'm really interested in mm. um, but yeah certainly it's a uh, it's, it's definitely the kind of poetry I was writing at that time. I, th I think mm. it's it's hard to say when your work shifts. I think that's why it's nice to be part of a group because, you know, sometimes other people see it clearer, but I think there's been a bit of a shift. Mm. So this feeling of form then, there's something, is that, so how, is that something you've sort, you've almost set yourself as a challenge? Yeah. I'm now, oh, I'm yeah. going to... Does do, do a lot of you guys write in, try like, try form and things like that? Mm. Yeah because I, I for me it's it's experimentation and it's mm. and I think once you start doing it you get kind of hooked on it because it's such a massive challenge but it also makes you um search more broadly I think it's, if you're looking for for example rhyming sounds and things and you want them to be that you want them to have integrity you, you end up with vocabulary you wouldn't necessarily use and then suddenly you've got an image that you wouldn't have created unless you were trying to write that line mm. in a villanelle so I think I've just got a little bit addicted to it, but it's also a really intellectual challenge. It's like, can I write an Englin, Englin, Englinian? <laughs> <laughs> Once you start on Welsh, has anyone investigated Welsh forms? I'm starting to because I'm writing wow. way at Wales, but it, I mean, it's going a bit over my head. They're you know? so intricate, aren't they? Yeah. And I, I, I'm like, <laughs> so I want to do it bit. now. <laughs> it's very exacting, and I like that, but yeah. It, it can be quite... I quite like write, having a free verse poem on the go and a form poem. Mm. Just, you know, I don't know. It's just nice contrast. But, yeah, you do end up with... I think once you try it, you realise you get very fresh material. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you get the element of chance too, I guess, because you, yeah, you, you're yeah. not wholly controlling what you... you you're know, kind you've of forced slowly, into... Yeah. You, yeah. It's, even if you then decide it doesn't f work as a villanelle, you've got the lines and you've got the language that you wouldn't necessarily have had. Um, I think so, that's yeah. a good point as well, because sometimes you start one and it just doesn't work, so yeah. you have to just put it to one side. Yeah. You know, that idea of keep forcing, forcing doesn't always pay off, it, it? It can be soul-destroying, yeah. yeah, exactly. yeah. And it's, you can just see it as a way of creating material, I think. Yeah. That's quite helpful. I've been trying to write a specular poem for about ten years. <laughs> so what's a specular? It's the mirror. It's if oh, you imagine, okay. you know, when children do the handprint and then they press the other half and they open it, and it's a oh. that's the way I think of the specular. Poem. And it's 
I mean, I've been trying to force the same lines into. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds very gynaecological. Isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Who, you, who's the poet who created uh, Julia Copus? <coughs> Julia mm. Copus. It's a wonderful form. You you write it and then it's the same one but in reverse. Yes, yeah. yeah. Jo- Josephine Corcoran wrote a very good one in her. Oh, uh, I'll write that down. Nan Archer's book, her, her latest book. Oh, very good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, well, there must be tips on how to yeah, do it. Yeah, whether you, yeah. yes, really. I, t- well, I, I actually had a like a little poetry group in the first school I worked in, and they wrote amazing ones. <laughs> <laughs> just really like easily you know. and it's interesting isn't it with form there is a sort of sense of playing a game with yourself aren't you, you know? yeah. so I mean, maybe as children that, that's easier just to do because just you just yeah. yeah maybe you mess around and you get less attached to particular yeah. things or they're just into to... the riddle of it you know yeah yeah, yeah. it was really interesting I mean, because if I, because in this, I think um, what I stood out for me a little bit was um, how the poems that you allow them a length. I thought, and they often are, you know. Yeah. Uh, so then, I wouldn't say it's a particularly it's necessarily long poems, but you have allowed them that space. So yeah, the editor commented on that because it's. <coughs> I didn't realise it wasn't particularly common to have the two <laughs> potentially three page. Mm. The ones I've done for the second one, there are. There aren't as many longer poems. I think I wanted to challenge myself to, to be more contained and concise. Um, I don't regret the length of these mm. at all. Um, mm. I think part of it was because there was a lot of kind of research and then I was, you know, finding these lovely nuggets and didn't want to cut them down. There might have been a bit of a lack of discipline. I think they came out all right. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 I did have a kind of thing about writing longer poems when I did this collection I'm, I've now gone kind of shorter although there are some some lengthy ones in the second book but definitely fewer yeah I mean I like um, length because I quite yeah. like the sense of um that push you get against the end you know that you could easily sort of chop at a certain point but when you push against yeah. that and what comes next can be really interesting because it can start to feel like a lot of poems are just it almost it's almost like a lot of poems end up with the same rhythm if they're the similar length all the time and mm-hmm. and it's nice with the push there's that little turn I mm. try and have that little turn in a longer poems where there's a slight shift and that could be where it ended but actually mm. there is more to, mm. to say and certainly with the rivers poem which is which is quite long I think that's about three pages in there there are just I mean that needed it I think because there are so many you know a river and it's all about people's interpretations of rivers and their different rivers and I, I, I didn't feel that that should be shrunk I felt that all those voices were were important but. and it opens it's that opening out isn't it into yeah. your own sense of the, the river it takes it off it goes off it takes its own absolutely um, meandering and yeah 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 and it's good, it's good for people... I think I felt it was good for me to read longer poems. Maybe it took a few sittings, but I think it would be a shame to lose them. Um, with There's an obsession with the 40-liner, isn't there? And <laughs> all the competitions, it's like, oh, God, not again. <laughs> God, I'll enter that one. But, um, but there's Long Poem Magazine, which is really good, if you guys know the journal. But yeah. yeah. So are there any particular influences you would talk about for yourself then or well that you've loved i mean obsession is another thing in this so your obsessions yes, don't that? have to only yeah. be uh, with poets because like clearly 
um, the Titus Andronicus poems yeah. are a obsession. I don't know who else knows. Cormorants. And cormorants, <laughs> yeah. Gardens. There's, um, Gardens. <laughs> so, someone came up to me and said, um, after a reading, and she said, Quite obsessive, aren't you? <laughs> like, <laughs> quite obsession's fine to mine. Oh God! So, on, so, so. Um, but influences. Well, Shakespeare is an obsession stroke influence. I think he is for a lot of us, isn't he? I mean, he's. But I did um, creative writing at Warwick under David Morley. Yes, I'd say David yes. Morley was a massive, huge, important part of my life. I, I, I mean, I saw him read at the festival actually. Yeah. That yeah. beautiful bird poem. Yeah. And um, he, I remember him saying on the degree, I want you to start reading Nobel Prize winners. And he got me to read a collection by a poet called Odysseus Elitus. Um, really obscure book, but just stunning, stunning imagery. Very, um, quite challenging imagery, but, but really quite explosive. Um, Neruda, massively influential on me. And he got me reading Neruda and Montale, Eugenio Montale. Right. And then um, people like... And then when you start reading sort of contemporary poetry, um, I, I got really into Julia Copus, Sharon Olds. Um, I love Sylvia Plath. I wouldn't say she's someone I read all the time, but she's definitely there. Seamus Heaney, major, mm. massively. That's I had a hopeless A-level teacher but nothing could turn me off Seamus Heaney. <laughs> and I think as a teenager, that was the thing that got me really into poetry. Yeah, yeah that's interesting, yeah. the idea of Nobel winners. And who was the one you said? No, no, no. There's a guy called... Uh, I haven't read them for a while. There's a guy called um, Eugenio Montale. Eugenio Montale, something. Odysseus Elitus oh, okay. and uh, Pablo Neruda. I think they were the three. And actually, Ezra Pound. Mm. I studied the cantos as part of a Masters in Mythology. And that... That fragmentation and the and the, the the daring of having those strange you know fragmented yeah. and the imagistic yeah, yeah, yeah. that you don't have to totally understand on the normal level. Yeah. I loved that. Yeah, wasteland and the modernists mm. for sure. Oh, I'd like to hear a bit about it. Does anyone have any questions? Anyone that you want to ask something? Well, I just to? really enjoyed lots of it, and uh, oh, I really good. enjoyed the. Um, uh, the, the, the image of the garden centre oh, and, yeah. and the wildness sort of coming in but sort of being ejected again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and what a garden centre means to gardens and what a garden centre meant to the woodland around it. It was all very... Oh, that's really just, interesting. I found yeah. it all really fascinating. And then in the pantoon, the garden felt sort of locked in and locked out by the form in a really interesting way. So I, I like the way you really put that. It's got me thinking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely tensions between wildness and cultivation. And so is that a Forest of Dean thing? I mean, do you, it, know, you know, it is. What influences the forest? I, I don't know if it's come in subconsciously because, yeah, it probably has. There is that thing in the if you know the Forest of Dean, there is that constant battle between people trying to put in a spa complex and then other people saying this is an SSSI, please don't put a cycle track through it. You know, there is. Um, my my dad was part of a Friends of the Forest of Dean group that formed because um, the Forestry Commission wanted to put a cycle track through an S a site of scientific interest with um, special scientific interest with various lovely like orchids and things. I think they did it in the end, um, and then and then the cycling issue with the problems with 
you know, some would argue cyclists don't bring money in, they just leave litter and, you know, they don't respect the cycle path. So, yeah, there actually is a place. There is that mass... And the complaints about boar... Yeah. Even though they're a native species yeah, and the badger cult, <laughs> yeah, they love them though. You know, yeah, they, yeah. someone said, "Oh, yeah. they've been but tearing up." Yeah, <laughs> someone said they've been tearing up gardens in Colford, and you're like, "But it is a forest, mm. you know." Yeah. Mm. The badger cult. That. So that's really interesting. And I that think that probably has crept through. Yeah. He's quite cultivated nature in his a lot of the time, isn't it? But there is so the wildness the as well. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And the sort of mythology oh. of the characters you're resurrecting, yeah. this, um, Lavinia, how, how she's... Yeah, she... Yeah. With, with Lavinia, I think it was about that language, you know, that mm. a big influence on me was the... Um, has anyone seen the Julia Taymor, Titus Andronicus, with um, mm. oh, the Welsh actor, really famous Welsh actor? Is it a Anthony, play? Or a, f- a, it's film, a film, it's a film. Yeah. Oh, okay. uh, he Hannibal Lecter Anthony Hopkins is and that there's an amazing shot in that where Lavinia is standing on the hillside and she opens her mouth and this blood streaks out and gets caught by the wind and so we'd studied it at university and then I saw that film and it just became a thing from then Mm. the idea of language as blood and women and you know repression and that kind of thing so yeah gosh it's very strong very powerful that poem really Oh, you know, for today, to right now, bang! Mm. In the it's a bit of a change of tone in a reading. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there's a couple more coming with her, but you know, I've got a couple. They're not quite there yet, but um, yeah, I think I think there might be a couple more Lavinia's cropping up. Yeah, I mean, because when you chose to do the MA, did you deliberately sort of shy away from a creative writing one then and choose mythology? Or yes, what I did. Yeah, I felt really. I went to a comprehensive, which like many of us did, and we didn't do any classics at all. There, there actually there are quite a few comps now because there's a whole scheme where they're trying to bring in classics into comprehensives, but. We did none, and then it kept, kept cropping up in Shakespeare, references to mythology and things mm. like that. I just felt really ignorant, mm. and and he also wanted to sort of explore a different field. So, and David Morley said, "Don't do," <laughs> he said, "Don't do what," and uh, you know, now you've done the BA, don't do a master's in creative writing, do it in something else, because he was a scientist. Yeah. So, yeah, and I'd always loved ancient history, so I just I kind of just wanted to to get those references and yeah, yeah. dive into that. yeah yeah. Any other questions or things? I can't think of a poet who used to put um, bottles and shits in bottles. <laughs> well, it's Nevuda. Oh, was it? Okay. Is it all right that I told you? It's Nevuda, but obviously it's got a T-Rose and it's got some really Englishy details in it. That's one of those poems that got very long because I really enjoyed reading about the objects he had in his Isla Negra house. So I just included them all. <laughs> you know... <laughs> I mean, because they're, they're very sound. Your poems are good on sound, aren't they, too? I, think I that's do like thing. sensuality. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Heaney's part of that as well, definitely. Yeah, and that... Um, so, obviously, you must read your poems to yourself, or... Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, um, the other thing about The Spoke was we started doing readings very quickly once we joined. So, I've been doing readings for quite a few years yeah. before even the pamphlet came out. Right, so. yeah. Um, do, do any of you guys do readings? Mm. Yeah, it's amazing when you hear the poem, isn't it? And yes. you, you actually listen to it yeah. properly, 
And I found that after doing even one or two, even before getting up to read, you know, the few minutes before, you, you edit because you can just hear it that bit more clearly mm. once mm. you know you've got to perform it or you've performed it. So I think it can really enhance the writing as well because I, when I, do. I write, I, I read it aloud as well as writing Absol it. Yeah. Yeah, it's my process. Mm. Yeah, I think sound has always been, like, massively important to me, mm. the, the musicality of it. Alliteration is delicious when it's done right, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, well the, our language is so onomatopoeic as well, isn't it? It's so full of those wonderful words that have the, the senses in them. So, yeah. Stitchery. Stitch. Ah, the problem is <laughs> there were too many stitches coming into my poems then. There were stitcheries everywhere, so that had to go. And there was something else I kept... You end up overusing imagery, I think. You have to be really careful. I, I, you know, I don't actually sew, but I got obsessed with the idea of stitches, so had to be careful what's in there and it's... It works in there, but you know, mm, yeah, you, yeah, you, you get these ticks and you, you yeah, the colour pink came up. Oh, did it? Oh, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. the pink, yeah, pink words. No, that's good, that's fine. I might be checking the second oh, no, book now. Many How much is <laughs> 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 it? I like it. This is great. This is why it's great, to, you know, to get people's responses and yeah, yeah. You read beautifully. Oh, thank oh, you. Yes. Even with the. <laughs> <laughs> you hear every word that you say. Oh, that's good. That's so good. Yeah. Oh, thank you. It's beautiful. That's that's really important to me. Thank you very much. Yeah, because it can go the other way. If you don't read well, then you know people get nothing from the poem at all. Yeah, all good. Well, thank you great. for that. That's oh, lovely. Pleasure. We've got um, time for some poems, please. Oh yeah, yeah if you great. Really talk about our poems, and um, we'll have time at the end, uh, in the middle actually, for chat and book signing. So then, if you have any any other questions, you can still ask them. Lovely. Then. So, uh, are we still okay? For yeah, just do. So right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Right. Uh, just check my little list. Yeah, okay. So this is um, the next poem is a homage to the garden centre, which is called they didn't name it, but it's got a funny name. It's called Pygmy Pinetum and it's on Cannock Crossroads in the middle of the Forest Sedine and it is beautiful. It's landscape garden, it's just gorgeous. So if you do get a chance, do go and visit. And this is my homage to that place. Home to the garden centre, the forest of Dean. We return when the garden flares, red, pink, orange rhododendrons and camellias, hydrangeas freeing their blue moths. To nest cones, spit-stitched to the eaves, the gargoyle with moss on his hands, a nostril plugged with lichen. We return to paths ribbed with sleepers, bogey wheels spiked with cogs, rusting on stream banks. To locked coal mines, unworked cream-faced quarries, a forest still oozing iron, 
bedrocks greased with ore. We return to boss-eyed boar rutting on the verge, piglets with humbug, humbug stripes, to hunting salt licks, culls, white flickers in the tails of fallow deer. We return to the stuccoed house, two miners' cottages knocked through, to the stutter of her singer as she hems liberty prints for curtains, cushion covers, foot dipping, rising on the treadle. We return to her ceramic bowl beside the Belfast sink, shaped like a bellflower, black with tadpoles every spring, their mouths opening holes in the surface, their tiny sucks on our fingertips. I'm only going to read one long one, <laughs> and it's a cormorant one, <laughs> and it's definitely about obsession, I think, this one. It starts with a quotation from a Chinese writer called Li Shizhen from a book called the Benkeo Gangmu. Please forgive my pronunciation. <laughs> the Eighth Fish. Every household keeps cormorants. There is fish with every meal. What is the eighth fish to you? Why have you walked Bristol streets thinking of the fisherman who plies oars through lotus, lily beds on Lake Byangdian, his boat crewed by cormorants perched on crooked sticks along the sides. The Yangtze, the Mekong, what are these great rivers to you? Li, Huai, Huang, Hei. What business have they here, in your mind all day, while you navigate this narrow city? Noose tied loosely around the throat, instinct constricted by string. A brief struggle, a question, darting across the ancient eye. Ancestral reptile rising, then subdued. The bird surrendering to the present, the fisherman's chant, his dance rocking the boat, until his fish hawk launches, fires into deep water, follows the dark flight paths of his need. Pole dipped, bird latched on, lifted on its pivot, landed on the planks, its gullet thick with instinct, swelling behind the string with the bulging temptation of a fish it can't swallow. Why are you fixated on this? Fledgling trained until its master's voice is strong as a leash. 1,300 years of his weathered hands massaging the serpentine neck for the prize until the bulge rises through barricades of hunger. Copperfish, carp, delivered in a triumph of obedience, a blaze of silvered light. Are you one of them at a greater distance? Tourists seeking capture and release 
as the fisherman holds his bird over the water, watching from the reedy shores of the Three Gorges, from the banks of water towns, Tongli, Zuhuang, romanticising in the blue hour, as the master squats opposite his heedful cormorant, lantern between them, their task illumined, the question illumined, how much writhing silver will they eke from the night? Why, on Dean Street, on Vauxhall Bridge, do you keep thinking of the eighth fish? The birds tally achieved, waiting after the seventh eel or thrashing hulk of catfish, expectant for its pittance, tiddlers flung to its yawning hunger. I should have said they get the eighth fish and they've realised they know how to count because they, they wait for the after seven for the fish. Fascinating. <laughs> um, right. I spent a little bit of time teaching English as a foreign language in Italy, and it wasn't. I expected this. It was a town just outside the Veneto, and I in the Veneto, just outside Venice, and I expected this really picturesque town, and it it was above a cheese factory, and it was awful, and everyone was seemed to be asleep while I was teaching, except my students. But my friend lived in Padova, Padua, and um, a, it was a real comfort going to see him. And it sort of got me through those months. When you say Padua, I think of Padova, where he taught us the mocha pot. We stepped from arcs of stone and light to his slender hands on Moroccan tiles, cool porticos to the soft sump of ground coffee, scooped into the filter basket, water catching light as he filled the base, placed the silver bialetti on the stove ring, waited. He kindled us with, with espresso, taught us to listen for the gurgle lift before it bubbled, scalded the grounds. Reeking sweetness, demerara thickened the dark to syrup, exploring our mouths. No sound but our slow-sipped surrender. Mm. I love coffee, I really miss it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to end with an experiment in form for me. Uh, has anyone heard of a glosser? No. So you take a set of lines from someone else's poem and you use them at the end of each of your stanzas. So I think there are different forms of it, but that's the one I had a go at. Um, has anybody seen The Watchers, the sculpture by Anthony Gormley on Crosby Beach? Or have you heard of it at all? Pictures. Yeah, it's, it's, it's um, metal sculptures. I think there's... How many are there? So 100 all across the beach and they're all looking out to sea and he used different combinations of metal so they're all corroding in different ways and there's different colour patterns all over their, their, their crusts um, and my mum's from Liverpool so we spent a lot of time uh, in Liverpool and we've stayed near Crosby Beach so I got really into this sculpture 
and I thought about um, lines written a few miles above Tintern Abbey when I was looking at Wordsworth's poem I started to see resonances between that and what I was thinking about these sculptures so I've used four lines from Wordsworth's lines written a few miles above Tintern Abbey and they end each of the stanzas of this poem which will be my last poem The Watchers after the sculpture Another Place by Anthony Gormley sorry it starts with the four lines of something far more deeply interfused whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and in the mind of man Crosby Beach yearns, desiring feet, paws, hungriest sand, churning slithers of light. They watch day shrink to a line in always too much sky. Rusted eyes sweep for news. No, there is no use searching light or the sea's dark knots. No use fathoming for truth among the wafting roots of something far more deeply interfused. The estuary skims them, wet salted breeze, gulls keens, a frigate's low horn dimmed by white miles. Light confuses sleek water as tides change in their rusted minds. A surge in the blood as they dream they're lost, swelling on the horizon. Slinks back, hope slumps as they dread the ship sunk, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns. They have watched so long, time has mapped them with lurid crusts, frail rinds, oxide blisters. Every day their grief brightens as they let themselves rust. The body's changing tides laid bare as they hold the water's stare, sift along the seam of last light infusing their gaze with a final flare and the round ocean and the living air. They watch the beach forget. The lost survive in corroding chests, eyes so brittle they have begun to flake. They trail the breeze through cupped hands, but there is no sign in the cycles that graze them no hint in bristling dunes, the deep suck of sand. On the horizon, final fusion of sea and sun, snuffed, leaves their fissured stairs, their blazing rusts. No sign in blinking cities, swathes of farmland and the blue sky and in the mind of man. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <coughs> <coughs>